Who are those guys? It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy weekend to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, that makes us Manson Mitchell. Glad to be in your ears for the hour and happy once again to be working alongside, separated by only 3,000 miles of diagonal distance between home base in Seattle and Sarasota, Florida, where we reside and come to you through Zoom through the good efforts of Nathan Miller. Tall guy, Nathan, how are you doing today, sir? Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And getting a little nervous here with the wild card race. You know, Mariners, they had a pretty good gap between the team that was out of it, but now it's getting tighter. And wouldn't that be something if that whole 3,000 miles had to come into effect when the Mariners go against the Tampa Bay Rays at some point in the MLB playoffs? I'm oh, skipping a jump. Definitely. Our local <laughs> affiliation aside, my sympathies are with the Seattle Mariners and their fans. Wouldn't it be great if the M's became a Cinderella team in 2022? They are. I mean, everybody's counting on that happening. They still got a good chance, but they, they got to get going. Well, I wish them the best. I Hope do it too. works out. Thank you. I and all too. the best to the Tampa Bay Rays as well. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. They're, they're nearby. They're, they're an hour away, but I, I wouldn't call myself a Rays fan. They, they may be washed away by next weekend. Yeah. And hopefully not us with them. <laughs> wow. The big winds are coming and lots of rain. So that's why it's a good thing we scheduled Jeffrey Mark for today. We've got today. To, we, we have to enjoy the man while we have access to him. That's we don't right. even know if we'll have power next week. Glub, glub, glub. But we have Jeffrey today. Which, and we're going to talk Hollywood. Jeffrey Mark, of course, being a walking encyclopedia of Hollywood history. But there are mad props to go with that. And Suzanne Mitchell is going to read them right now. A singer, stand-up comedian in nightclubs and cabarets, and an off-Broadway veteran, Jeffrey Mark has hosted radio series, written comedy, and now writes and produces documentaries and reality shows for cable television. Jeffrey also has written three best-selling books devoted to Lucille Ball, Ella Fitzgerald, and Ethel Merman. And we are pleased to welcome Jeffrey Mark once again to Manson Mitchell. Hello, Jeffrey. It's a thrill, you know, up to the moment when you said Jeffrey Mark, I didn't recognize one word you said. So since you've said Jeffrey Mark, oh, I'm all involved now. Thank you. (laughs) All right. That's right. That's right. We always like talking us some Hollywood stuff. And Gary says there's several things he wants to talk to you about today. More than one topic. But he said you can never stump him no matter what we talk about. He will know something about it. There's no point in trying. Because he is a man who knows. He knows his Hollywood writ large. And, you know, today, this isn't the way I intended to do a soft opening to the interview, Jeffrey. But I I feel it's only appropriate for me to ask you for your your appreciation, any memories you have, and a kind of evaluation of the career of Louise Fletcher. She was a splendid, splendid actor who fortunately or unfortunately when one becomes so associated with one role in their career that no matter what else you do 
I'm sure she knew that someday when she passed, that when they talked about her, it's going to be Nurse Ratchet. The first thing out of people's mouths is going to be Nurse Ratchet. And whatever else she did, whatever else she accomplished, what she may have been proudest of doesn't matter because that's the first thing we think of. And you know what? I I don't think that's such a bad thing. Uh, Lucille Ball used to say typecasting. I love getting typecast because that means people are thinking about me one way. It means they're thinking about me. And I think Ms. Fletcher's legacy is large. And uh, it's a shame when, when, well, it's a shame when anyone goes, but when really, really talented people leave the arena, it, it, it's very, very sad. That is, that is a nice appreciation of an extremely talented actress. It also puts me in mind of the number of people who struggle and it really kind of ties in to one of the topics that Suzanne and I wanted to take up with you today, Jeffrey. Getting typecast, well, just as one example, if you're Carol O'Connor, I would love to have been on the inside of his life when he decided, hey, there's something else for me to do. I have a career. I have a past in this business. I am not Archie Bunker in temperament or character, but I'm forever known as that character, Archie. And so when that's over, he decided that his career was not simultaneously over. He looked for more to do in different ways. Well, and let's take a step backwards from that. Carol O'Connor, the actor, was typecast long before Archie Bunker. His whole career in films and on television was playing shifty-eyed, middle-aged guys you couldn't trust, almost always the bad guy. He was never the, the happy father of the bride, or he was always the guy on Mission Impossible who spoke with an accent. He was always the guy that, oh, Carol O'Connor's in this. Bad stuff is going to happen. And he had to fight that prejudice just to get Archie Bunker. It took them. They did three pilots of that thing before any network would even think about running it. And yes, you are absolutely correct. Once Archie Bunker came and went. So it's all the years of all in the family and then Archie Bunker's place. Uh, Carol did what a lot of comedy people were doing at that moment in time. He did the same thing Andy Griffith and Dick Van Dyke did, which is we will never really be able to be funny again because they'll always think of our iconic characters. Let's do drama. And each of them did a crime or a mystery series. Very, very successful. You know, I didn't think of Andy Griffith as reinventing himself. And that was one of the topics that Gary and I really wanted to take up with you. Is I could talk who the whole did... hour about, I don't mean to interrupt right. you, but the best advice I've ever been given. That's why we, we book these things, our listeners out there. How do I get on this show with these folks? I have a publicist, B. Harlan Bowl, and either of these lovely folks reach out to me directly or through my publicist. And when I heard the topic was reinventing yourself, I said, yes, I want to spend a whole hour talking about that. Many years ago, I was taken to, and I won't tell you which party, uh, just to keep this open to everybody, but to a political party's state big time luncheon dinner thing to raise money. And I was brought there by one of the original I Love Lucy writers, Bob Schiller. And Bob's 
last wife, hey, Jeff, let's go for a walk. And I knew that she didn't particularly like me. Bob and I were very close friends. And she was like, uh, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. So she kept me around. And she said, Jeffrey, there's something you have to learn. I want you to know. She said, if you want to have a career until you're old, you're going to have to learn how to reinvent yourself. Mm. And I, I, I kind of stopped in my tracks and like, what are you trying to tell me that what I do is no good or I'm getting older or what she meant was when I was a youngster, I was, you know, it's funny how people see me. It depends on when you met me in my career. There are people out there who will tell you Jeffrey Mark is a great dancer. I haven't danced in half a century. There are people who will tell you I'm a singer. I'm a comedian. I'm a writer. I'm an author. I'm an actor. I'm an activist, depending on where in my life you met me. And she said, you have to, you have to wear. And of course, we know I wear these sparkly hats. She says, you have to keep changing your hats because if one thing doesn't work, you have to be able to do something else. And that really was when I decided to be a hyphenate, that I was going to do all the things that my talent would lend them it's itself to, or they would lend themselves to, and not only be one thing, that there's all these things available in the universe. And I should try and touch all of them and keep reinventing myself and, and then as I've gotten older, you know, I've, I've gone from kid actor on the stage to now being called a show business icon because I've been around so long. You know, next year, I'm celebrating 50 years in show business um, and I'm still working, which is amazing. But part of the reason why I'm still working is I keep reinventing myself. When um, you mentioned Andy Griffith, I had forgotten that he had done the courtroom drama after the Andy Griffith show. So Matt he went Locke. from from sheriff to um, to Matlock. And Gary and I had a lunch in Mount Airy, North Carolina, while we were on our road trip, and there was a whole big museum dedicated. Oh, sure to Andy Griffith, which we didn't really have time to go into. Oftentimes when there are these special places you want to see and you're on the interstate, they're like a hundred miles off the interstate. So then you have to go a hundred miles off and a hundred miles back. And as it happens, Mount Airy was less than 10 miles off the interstate. And we said, let's have lunch in Mount Airy. And it turned out to be a lot of fun because the whole town was Mayberry. They had the Floyd's Barber and the diner and all the stuff there that reminded you of the Mayberry, including a police car with a Barney Fife character in it, riding around, sounding the siren in a car from that era. So that turned out to be a lot of fun. And interestingly enough, one of the people that we were looking at that reinvented himself in the industry was Ron Howard, also from the same show. You well, know, go, going from kid actor to major director. And I thought, well, that's an, an interesting transformation too. Very different. And if they aren't black and white, uh, one minute, one thing, one minute, the next thing, it's, these are transitions reinventing yourself. Uh, Ron had a career before Andy Griffith started, actually. 
And he segued into being a teenaged actor, which is different than being a kid actor. And then Happy Days, where he wasn't, he was playing a teenager, but he wasn't teenaged. And then he followed his passion and reinvented himself as a director, got to direct Betty Davis. I think his first time out as a TV movie director. Ron understood the business and understands the business. Ron, we we who know Ron and, and talk about these things, Ron had the best show business father in the world. I don't mean Andy. I mean, his father, Rance, who grounded Ron, who made sure that Ron had chores at home. They didn't live off of Ron's money. They put that aside for him. They lived on their income. Ron, Rance was there on the set. There's, and there's whole movies of this to prove it, making sure that, that Ron got to play catch and ride his bicycle and ride a pogo stick if he felt like it. He made sure that Ron was a kid first and actor second. And all those things Ron learned, both from Rance and then from Andy and all the wonderful people at Desilu, he took with him. And as he aged, now Ron is on the Elder Statements, Elder Statesman Act. Uh, good heavens, I'm having trouble this morning. Elder Statesman Director. He's been directing for so long now, but he's a directing icon. It's, uh, I don't know anyone who really is happy in their lives, who feels any sense of fulfillment or that they reached their goals, who are the same person at 20 that they are at 50 or 60. If, you, if one freezes oneself, like, this is it. I'm grown up. I've learned all I have to know. And from now on, my life is this. You spend the rest of your life with bloody fingers trying to stay in place and not move and not grow and not change. And all that does is give you bloody fingers. It doesn't help you in your life any. People who understand that every time we wake up in the morning, the whole world has changed. We may not be able to see it in our own little personal purview, but if we could uh, be an eye out in space looking at the world and go, oh my goodness, there have been millions and millions of changes just since yesterday. And then the people who embrace the changes and go, okay, it's a new day. It's a new time. It's a new opportunity. I think those are the happiest people. And I didn't learn that as a kid. I, it, the, the, the seed was planted in me by Sabrina Schiller. And once I had the seed planted, I grew myself. And it's the same thing with the sparkly hats, the clothing I'm known for. I didn't come up with that. Rip Taylor did. Rip Taylor came and saw me being a performer. And he said, Jeffrey, you're magic on the stage, but you dressed you dress like a blanking accountant. I'll leave out the word he used. <laughs> And he took me to dinner and said, you need to find a hook. You need to find glamorous clothing, something glamorous that suits your personality. And as soon as I started doing that, my stardom rose. I changed. I grew. I kept, I reinvented myself as this guy who wears all these sequins and jewelry. And it works for me. So every time I embrace the change, it works out well for me. The, the industry of 
putting people on film happened a really long time ago on the big screen before the small screen. And so you had a lot of people making movies right from 1900, 20s, 30s, 40s. And it, and it seems that one of the biggest reinventions of anybody would be going from making films to television. Is there anyone who did that better than Lucille Ball? No. I didn't think so. I, I could hold you up with just the word no. I'll, 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 I'll elaborate a little bit. The right person at the right place at the right time for all the wrong reasons. In the late 1940s, television had been around for a while, but World War II had stopped anyone working on it to make it any better. It was embryonic. But after the war, people started putting money, especially the people at CBS, NBC, and the Dumont television networks. They had a, a, a reason to put money into television. And most of the people who were big radio stars wanted nothing to do with television. Good heavens. You could come into a studio and radio. The script is in front of you. You didn't have to memorize it. You didn't have to wear a costume. You didn't have to learn blocking. You didn't have to walk anywhere. You rehearsed it two or three times. You were on the air and you made a bundle of money. Jack Benny referred to it as like stealing money how little effort had to go into the actual performance of it. Why would you give up that to go into television for less money? And now you got to wear costumes and have costume fittings and wear makeup and change your costumes and learn blocking. That's hard work. And Miss Ball only wanted to do it because she wanted to work with her husband. Bill Paley at CBS wanted Jack Benny Burns and Allen, and Lucille Ball's hit radio sitcom, My Favorite Husband, to make the transition from radio to television. Jack Benny did it, but he didn't do it full-hearted. He kept his radio show going in the late 50s and was on television in the beginning, once every six weeks, then once every three weeks, then for years, every other week. Burns and Allen did it as a challenge. They were, they were loaded with money. They didn't care anymore. George Burns loved the idea of reinventing himself, something new, that the audience could see them again, like it was in vaudeville. Miss Ball didn't care about television. She cared about her marriage. She cared about her husband. She cared about maybe having some home movies to show the children someday of what they looked like when they were young. And they went into television for those reasons and lightning in a bottle. No one could predict what would happen. And nobody did it better because Miss Ball and Mr. Arnez were two people who, whatever it is they did, they tried to do it with excellence. The very, very best they could. And because they were so darn talented, their very best was amazing. But you're absolutely right. No, nobody did it better. There was nobody who went from radio or from movies into television that was any more successful than Lucille Ball. But, but look at the chain of events there. It's not like she and Desi sat down and said, 
we're going to conquer television and we're going to buy back RKO studios that we once worked in together. Those were not thoughts, but they happened because they reinvented themselves. That's why we have this gentleman on. <laughs> right. You learn so much right. and it's fascinating. We have a few minutes to go before we take our break. So maybe this is a good time for me to bring up Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, the late great. Jeffrey, in looking at Jimmy Stewart's career, and I I didn't come up with this, I read it somewhere, but what I understand, and correct me if someone is wrong, whom I'm citing here, there, I, I go through this, and a lot of the stuff you pick up on Wikipedia, because people are just, yeah, 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 and they're throwing these citations in, and they want to get their two cents in. Did Jimmy Stewart reach a point in his career after he came back a war hero, a legit war hero? And he made It's a Wonderful Life. I've heard that the movie, you know, whatever we think of it today, and it's much beloved around the world. When he made that movie, was he prepared for the kind of reception the movie got among critics and at the box office before he perhaps made the decision? vision that if I'm going to lengthen my career, if I'm going to stick around, maybe I need to look at making something like Westerns. How did it work for him? You're giving Mr. Stewart a little too much credit, I think. Really? Like everybody else in show business, we work from project to project to project. I don't come on with Manson Mitchell. And while I'm talking with you, plan my next radio show. I'm here with you. Now, if my next radio show is a better one because I'm with you today, well, God bless America and thank you, Manson Mitchell, but you can't plan that. It happens. And the wise people, when it happens, they go, ooh, 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 something's happening. Let me pay attention. That Mr. Stewart did. Also, it's a wonderful life was not an icon when it came out any more than the wizard of Oz was when they first came out, they did okay, both films, but it was not until television and they made a huge mistake with it's a wonderful life. They forgot to re up the copyright. So in the late fifties or early sixties, it became public domain and it's, it is a holiday film. I remember being a youngster and then a young adult in New York City. It's a Wonderful Life wasn't just being shown constantly at Christmas. It was shown on every single channel in New York City. It was on Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 11, Channel 13, Channel 572, because it was free. They didn't have to pay for it. That's how It's a Wonderful Life became this icon that we think of. But but back in the late 40s when it was made, it was just another James Stewart film. What, what, what Mr. Stewart also had to deal with, which is what Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, is those people who became stars in the 30s. Well, now they're 10 years older or they're 15 years older or they're 20 years older. He couldn't play the same, oh gosh, garly gee whiz parts he did when he was fresh out of... Uh, Yale and Harvard and the places where he, he first got started, he had to change his image to keep working. 
Notice how I slipped in today's topic. He had to reinvent himself. He was no longer the tall, lanky, pretty young guy who got the girl. He had to now be something different. And as he aged, that's what he did. He did not change as quickly as someone like Fred McMurray did. So by the time Jimmy came to television, it was too late already. He was too old. And had he come to television in the 50s, he probably would have been on television for many, many years in his series. This is an instance of someone waiting too long to change, too long to reinvent themselves. Uh, You cannot be the number one star forever. You can't be a heartthrob forever. Sooner or later, every actor has to go, okay, now I'm playing somebody's handsome father or grandfather or great-grandfather. And you embrace it and you change and you keep working. I had a, uh, my girlfriend's father, when I was growing up, only watched two things on TV. And of course, in the early days of TV, you only had a few stations. And he used to watch every war movie and every Western. And so no matter when you were at their house, that's what he had on. It was either the wars or the Westerns. Yeah, my father was the same way. Now, interesting that James Stewart was in the war, but he didn't gravitate to that. He actually went to Westerns. And, you know, to see him in Western roles after, as you said, you know, being the, oh, gosh, golly guy, tall, lanky, gets the girl. All of a sudden, now he's uh, he, he's a cowboy. I mean, that that seems like a, an odd thing t- for him to have picked or to have been picked for, you know, however you want to look at that. Cowboys are ageless. As long as you can get up on the horse and fit into the costume. A cowboy doesn't have to be any particular age. So it's an easy transition to look look at what John Wayne did with that. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why he played so many cowboys is cowboy at 18, cowboy at 35, cowboy at 67. And as long as he can get his fat rump on the horse, he was (laughs) able, he was able to carry that off. The other thing with James Stewart is that he was mostly known for comedies and sentimental films. The other reinvention was the Hitchcock part of James Stewart playing, Uh, playing the sophisticated, intelligent guy who gets caught up in something not of his making, but now he has to deal with it. So those, it wasn't, it wasn't just Westerns, right? uh, But but Mm -hmm. he, he, he allowed himself to become a middle-aged man. He allowed his hair to to turn gray. He uh, allowed his toupee to turn gray along with it. He didn't try to stay 30 forever. But I, I think the Hitchcock movies yes. helped his image even more yeah. than the Westerns did. And then he was able to go back to comedy and do a parody of the kinds of things he'd done as a youngster. And that worked also. Was that in something like Dear Bridget? Yeah. Yeah. Or or uh, the films he made with Henry Fonda when they were both getting up there in age or films he made with, with John Wayne. Uh, they, they became a wink to the audience. Okay, folks. Yeah, we're still putting on the chaps and the guns, but, uh, you know, the waistline has gotten bigger and uh, 
we're still here. And hey, so are you. Isn't it great? We're all growing old together. Well, that, that kind of wink to the audience can make you uh, beloved. And on that note, that's a nice way of putting it, Jeffrey Mark. He is our honored guest of the hour. We're talking about Hollywood history. Why? Because Jeffrey Mark is in the house. Give us a couple of minutes. We'll be back with more right here on AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Pamela Kramer, whose work with independent filmmakers serves as a creative backdrop to her new vocation as a healing energy worker. On Saturday, John Welshans, a Ramananda who studied with Ram Das, returns to share his thoughts about the consciousness and the state of the planet today. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Jeffrey Mark. Jeffrey, I don't know what you're doing publicly this uh, these days, but if our listeners to our show would like to somehow you know, connect with you or find out what you're doing or perhaps you know, be face-to-face, what is the best way for them to do that? Oh, that's really easy. Uh, first of all, I'm on Facebook as Jeffrey Mark, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-M-A-R-K. I'm on Instagram, Jeffrey Mark Showbiz. I'm on Twitter at Jeffrey Mark. I have my weekly radio show, which is not a competition because it's a music show. Jeffrey Mark plays Ella, where every week I play the music of the great Ella Fitzgerald on a theme. And I tell you all the inside stories behind the music. I'm working on three books and then next year there will be a singing tour. I'll be touring the country. Hopefully I can get out your way, your way, meaning both Seattle and Florida. Mm. And um, I'll come over on your electric toothbrush. If you'll let me. 
so uh, it, it's it's easy to find me and um, I love hearing from people. And by the way, huge, huge thank you for that Liberty Valance thing, uh, because that was one of the films I was alluding to when we were talking about um, the Westerns and reinventing yourself. That was yes. a great catch. That Liberty Valance song. Yay. All right. And uh, and who who did shoot Liberty Valance? Uh, <laughs> Got to watch the movie to find out. Well, there's such a poignant <laughs> movie, uh, a poignant moment in the movie. And watching it again, it was been years since I've seen it all the way through again. But every time when somebody comes up to Jimmy Stewart's character and they say, I want to shake the hand of the man who shot Liberty Valance. And there's John Wayne taking it in, not needing to burst Jimmy Stewart's character's bubble. It was OK. He knows what he, he didn't have anything to prove. And the audience knows what happened because it's all spelled out for you. And I think how many times in life do we receive either credit or blame for something that we didn't do? That was a human moment. It was indeed. It's one of my favorite Westerns. And I also like the fact that Ron Howard got to be in John Wayne's last movie. The Shootist. And was that Jimmy Stewart's last movie? You know, off the top of my head, I want to say it was his last Jimmy made TV movies after that, but I believe it was his last film done in made for release into movie theaters. Thank you for that. And I, I recall reading that supposedly Jimmy Stewart almost walked off the set because somebody putting that film together, and I don't think it was John Wayne's interference. I don't think he would do that there, but somebody was trying to tell Jimmy Stewart how to play his role, how they wanted it. And they frustrated him again, allegedly to such an extent that he almost just quit the project. When you are an actor and you've made 50 or 60 or 70 films, it takes a very strong and wise director to bring out the best in you. Somebody who is a hack. When I say a hack, by the way, that used to mean that you were terrible at what you did. The word hack has taken on a different meaning today. But when you're a hack director and you try to take a square peg and put it into a round hole because you feel like it, uh, actors of, of the incredible experience level of someone like Jimmy Stewart or any of the wonderful people we're talking about, they're going to push back. I say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, 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 no, you don't. Then there's someone like, I know this is kind of a sidebar, but on the Andy Griffith show, Francis Bavier, the woman who played aunt B hated directors, hated getting directed. Uh, my friend, Howard Morris was directing an episode of the show. He played Ernest T. Bass on the show, the guy who threw the bricks. <laughs> it's me. It's me. It's Ernest T. And uh, Francis got in his face. He told her, you know, walk over there behind the couch. Who are you to tell me where to walk? I know where to walk. And she was not very much loved on that show. She, she picked fights with almost everybody because she wouldn't take any input from anyone. You know, that, that's the other end of it. Someone who needs to get directed and won't allow it. But we're, we're, we're getting off topic about reinventing yourself. But no, Francis, that's fine. her punishment Francis, should be she should have been signed to a three picture deal with Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> but Francis reinvented herself. She was not always somebody's 
overweight aunt with, you know, curls on top of her head. She'd been in show business a very long time. And she actually was, when she was young, kind of pretty and played in her very early work on the stage, pretty girl roles as she aged. Uh, For whatever reason, she got so heavy and she became typecast in one sitcom after another as the woman, the mother, the aunt, the housekeeper who took care of other people. And she was a good enough actor that we never noticed that a woman who weighs 300 pounds probably really can't scrub the kitchen floor, but she made us believe she could. And then whip up a fantastic meal. Right. Yes, absolutely. By the way, uh, Jeffrey, you haven't lived until you've been in Mount Airy, North Carolina, in a Mayberry-themed gift shop with Suzanne Mitchell going, it's me, it's me, it's Ernestine. <laughs> They're not going, people are watching us, let's just get in the car and go. Well, wherever my friend Howie Morris is, he'll be very happy to know that he still remembered that way. Uh, <laughs> they have Mayberry days there, a special, and we just had it, it was just this last little bit of time, where they bring in people who are on the Andy Griffith show. Um, unfortunately, so many people have passed away who were a part of it. But the woman who played Thelma Lou moved there actually mm. to, to live there. Francis Bavier lived very nearby there. She, she retired there. Uh, the Dillards who were on the show, uh, my friend Ruta Lee just did it. And everybody who has been there always have a marvelous, marvelous time. Um, we're, we're kind of getting off topic, but th- that, that show is so revered so many years out. And it's, it's a slice of life that never happened. There were no small towns that never had crime. There were no small towns where seemingly nobody is married. Everybody on that show was single. Nobody ever got married. Uh, well, there was no crime. There was no racial tension. There was no financial issues. That never existed. That was a fantasy for us. But the show was enormously well-crafted. And uh, almost everyone on that show, I'll bring this around, almost everyone on that show either had to reinvent themselves to be on the show or after the show was over, had to reinvent themselves in some other fashion. Because look what Don Knotts did with his career. He was not Barney Fife for the rest of his life. Uh, Don was, believe it or not, a womanizer. Don was a magnet for ladies. They fell. We used to laugh. Those of us who were friends with Don and I can't use the term they used for what he did, but he was a magnet for ladies who fell at his feet. They just, just like you'd think Clint Eastwood would, would get that or um, whoever the current heartthrob out there is. They threw themselves at Don Knotts and Don was a good enough actor that he, he turned his Barney Fife turned into big time movie stardom. And when the movie stardom was over, he went back to television and did three's company reinventing himself again. And Bravo, God bless him. He happens to be a fraternity brother of mine is Phi Sigma Kappa. Yes. Including Don Knotts and Martin Milner too. But uh, yes, thank you for saying that. You know, who's a fine actor. I'll tell you what, I'm bringing temperament into this, Jeffrey. I'll tell you who's a great actor, Andy Griffith. Because Andy Griffith himself, in a nod to his own 
human fallibility. Late in life said he wished he could be more like Andy Taylor. But in fact, people who think, oh, Sheriff Taylor, that's who he is. Those folks who think that were wrong. Yeah, Andy was a complicated man. Um, I knew him a little. I did not know him. I was closer to Don. Don and I were friends. Andy, I knew. Andy reinvented himself. You know, he didn't just come out of the, the dock playing Andy Taylor. He uh, was a comedian in nightclubs and a singer in nightclubs who did hillbilly humor from a sophisticated point of view. And that got the attention of people. He did a television drama and a comedy that was then made into a Broadway show and a film that made him a star. And he spent the late fifties doing Broadway and making films. He was nowhere near playing the sheriff, but a backdoor pilot on the, the Danny Thomas show. And there he is playing that character. But Andy, Andy had a temper. There are several episodes of the show where his arm is in a cast. He punched his fist through the wall and broke it in anger. Uh, and Nita Corso, who played his girlfriend on the show, uh, he they had a real-time affair. Uh, so he was not the perfect husband. But I liked Andy. And I think I've told this story on the show before, so forgive me if I'm telling it again. When Don died, there was a memorial service for him at the actor's no, it was the Writers Guild Theater in, in Beverly Hills. And Andy got up on the stage and he more or less told this story. He said, you all know I was living in North Carolina and I wasn't spending a lot of time in Hollywood anymore. But when my friend Don got sick, I started coming back here to spend more time with him. He said, one day I went and visited him in the hospital. And I don't know what came over me. But I got the notion that I needed to crawl into bed with him. And then he got into bed with Don and put his arms around Don. And Don Knotts died in his arms. Mm. Oh, my gosh. I don't remember that story. And I, then Andy wow. followed that with something wow. that is so human. I loved this next sentence. He says, now, you all know I'm a born again Christian. And I deeply believe, I deeply believe, well, my friend Don wasn't. But even though he wasn't, and even though this goes against my religious beliefs, I know my friend Don is in heaven. That was a huge thing for Andy to say. Um, he wasn't saying it into a television camera, but he was saying it to 500 people sitting in a theater morning Don. And I thought, there's a lot more to this guy than he's ever shown us. To, to even question his own religious beliefs because of what he's experiencing. Because Don Knotts was such a lovely, lovely man. And his daughter, Karen, is becoming quite well known for her talent. Uh, I guess that's a reinvention in a way. To allow yourself to say, maybe I'm wrong, or maybe my beliefs have been a little, but I know this. Just there was a hush over the audience for half a second. People were like, is this is this going to be a joke? No, it was just somebody from the bottom of his heart loving somebody else. Uh, you don't see that so deep too often. And and you didn't see that coming out of Andy Griffith a whole lot anyway, 
So uh, there's a small reinvention. And I think we have enough friends out there who loved the show that I, I thought you'd like to hear that because I was there and I was witness to it. Well, thank you for sharing that, Jeffrey. That's very touching. Gary and I had some of these names that we've discussed today on our minds. They seemed pretty obvious to us about people who have reinvented themselves. And as Gary says, we can throw anything at you and, and you, you know, you know something about it. Are we missing somebody that you were thinking of that you wanted to bring up that, that we didn't, uh, that we didn't think about? You can look at almost anyone. Uh, two names come to mind immediately. Groucho Marx, who spent from the earliest days of the 20th century as part of a group called the Four Nightingales, through all of the vaudeville and uh, movies and radio with his brothers. And there comes a point where he decides he's not going to be a Marx brother anymore professionally. He's going to be Groucho. And uh, does not put on the grease paint eyebrows and mustache anymore and starts appearing in films just as an actor and then went to radio with a game show, You Bet Your Life, that became a television show that ran for, I think, 11 seasons on TV and four more on radio before that. That's a, a huge reinvention that worked so well. George Burns, his entire professional life that we know of, that we were watching, he was part of a team with Gracie Allen. Now, he'd done other vaudeville things before he met Gracie. But since the mid-1920s, until she died in 1964, he was part of a team. All of a sudden, she wasn't there anymore. Yes. Because uh, she, she, yeah. she retired before she passed away. Mm -hmm. And Gracie helped him to reinvent himself as an elder statesman comedian who worked on his own and was known for bringing new talent to the audience. People don't remember it was George Burns who really helped build the careers of people like Wayne Newton and Anne Margaret and Carol Channing and Connie Stevens, uh, bringing them to Las Vegas. Uh, Carol was already a big star, but it helped her. To be with him, reinvention. I, I I don't think we could point to almost anyone in show business who's had a long career who hasn't had to reinvent themselves in some way. And we're keeping this just to show business. But folks who are listening out there, this applies to whatever business you're in, whatever it is you do for fun, whoever you are as a person, every day is a new day. And there are chances for everybody to reinvent themselves. But but George Burns and uh, Groucho really come to my mind. Milton Berle. Milton Berle was a middle-aged man before he got the Texaco Star Theater on television and had done all sorts of things in show business. He was a star since he was 12. And then television came along and he reinvented himself as Mr. Television. I could always see him as being shrewd enough to see if I do this and I do that, that's going to work for me. He seems to be somebody who uh, had the brilliance, not only with his craft and his sense of humor, but the ability to calculate and decide where he fit into all that was going on. Milton was also a friend. Walk, walked through life with blinders. 
meaning. The only thing that existed for Milton Berle, other than his personal pleasures, was show business. Whatever else was going on in the world did not matter to him except for show business. And he spent his social time talking about show business. If he wasn't actually appearing in it, he was talking about it. Lunches and dinner with him were all about show business. Or he would say, uh, top 10 female comedians, go. He had these top 10 lists long before David Letterman. But if you're sitting with him, you'd better be able to come up with the names and you better come up with the reason. The reason he liked me is the same reason you guys like me. There wasn't a topic he could bring up that I couldn't discuss with him. That's how we became friends. I was brought to the Friars Club by Jack Carter, who was a friend of mine, to have lunch with him. And what do you say to Uncle Milty? How do you even start a conversation with an icon? So I said, March 22nd, 1949, you had Ethel Merman on the Texaco Star Theater. And, and before I could get the rest of the sentence out of my mouth, he says, how do you know that? And then I described the episode to him. He said, how could you possibly know what that was? It was live. He says, I don't even have a copy of it to look back on. I said, I do. He says, you have a copy? I have a kinescope. And now you have one too. We were frankly died. Um, all of them, all of those folks reinvented themselves. This is such a wonder. This is why I went, when I heard what the topic was, I was like, I can't wait to be on that show. I'm such a deep believer in it that we all have to do that to, to fulfill whatever it is we're meant to do here and to be happy persons. When you said people need to reinvent themselves in order to keep their career going, like it's a necessity, you really have to do that. One of the names that popped into my head who has had a really long career is George Hamilton. And he's doing all kinds of commercials now. Oh, and funny. I mean, he has no problem with poking fun at himself. And the one of them that I'm thinking about that is currently playing is um, is a story for paint or deck stain or something where they say, you know, if you haven't painted, it's like the the old uh, the old uh, resident is still living there. And there's George Hamilton lounging in a chair and waving. And I thought, you know, it's pretty great that that he sees the humor in his being around like that forever. But that's how George reinvented himself. He started off in show business being this ridiculously pretty, pretty boy who did heavy dramas. Uh, He was going to be the next whomever. Well, you know what? That worked for a few years. Uh, I don't think he had the talent to do the heavy drama stuff. So he reinvented himself as as a comedian, as, as a comedy actor, and played off of his pretty boy seductive thing and worked that for a while. Then he became famous for being famous by the people he knew and the people he hung out with. And now he's playing, hey, look at me. I'm in my 80s and I'm still hot. And it works for him. So I applaud him that he keeps doing that and keeps himself vital. Here's a question. As far as you know, Jeffrey, did George Hamilton regret not marrying into a presidential family? 
No, I don't think so, because unfortunately, uh, LBJ, we're talking about Lyndon Johnson, that he was at one time either engaged to one of the daughters or at least was dating heavily. Um, George kind of walked away when the Vietnam thing kind of blew up in everybody's faces. And LBJ, although they don't talk about it, but it is a true thing, had a nervous breakdown in the presidency and was not mentally healthy thereafter. Uh, his last years were very, very sad. And I, I think George thinks he dodged a bullet there because had he married one of those girls, I forget what, which which daughter it was off the top of my head, Linda Bird or whichever. One, one of the birds. One of the birds. Yeah. Uh, well, when you shoot when you shoot a birdie in golf, it's wonderful. But in real life, sometimes uh, the feathers fly, and I think it might have actually tarnished his stardom had he done that. So, uh, the, in the big picture, I don't think he regrets it. That's always fascinated me. Thank you for answering that, Suzanne. You had a list going. We got a few minutes here. Did you want to? Yeah, I'll answer? give you. I mean, I'll give you short answers. You ask a lot of questions. I'll give you one sentence answers. Uh, you had on the list Yvonne DiCarlo, Gary. Yvonne DiCarlo, she's more than just Lily Munster. And she wasn't Lily Munster. You know, Yvonne played exotic, seductive, bad girls before getting onto the Munsters. She did not like the role. She did not like having to be middle-aged in the role that streak of silver in her wig. She kept trying to cover that up with black paint because she did not like the idea of even being old enough to be a mother. She didn't like it after the monsters. Uh, she reinvented herself as a Broadway person. She re- she introduced the song. I'm still here in Stephen Sondheim's follies on Broadway. And then unfortunately she uh, became an alcoholic and, uh, wasn't the most pleasant lady to be around, unfortunately, which takes nothing away from her great beauty or her talent. Thank you for Boy, that. That's like a whole other topic for what, a whole other show. What can we say know? in 30 seconds? I always get a kick out of Shemp. Shemp Howard. Yes, he was one of the three stooges and they always only had three working in all of their features. But there was a guy he could play a gangster or a, a detective. Gangster, right. Before that, he had his whole career away from the stooges. He'd left them before they ever started making films, he didn't want to do that. He had a fine career as a character actor in movies until Curly had his stroke. And in order to save the act, uh, Moe's idea was, was to become the two stooges and Columbia studios said, no, our contract is with three. There always has to be three. And Shemp came back to the act just to help his brothers out to, to make sure they had an income. And unfortunately he died as a stooge. He gave up his life to help his brothers. We have seconds to go. Jeffrey Mark. Thank you, sir. We'll cook up another topic and have you back soon. Thank you. And have a great weekend, everyone.